Hi, I'm Rob Paulson, and you may know me better as Pinky from Pinky in the Plane. And, God, you're watching Sci-Fi Saturday Night. No. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Hello, I'm the Dome. Tonight on episode 425, we look forward with great excitement listening to people talk, because that's what we do. On board for tonight's talk cast is sitting at the Sci-Fi Saturday night gaming console and help desk, our own back alley free freeform fencing champion for the past three years, and prodigious prestidigitator of protons and electrons, Kriana, and our, our guest tonight. And not only do we get to talk to him, but we get to listen to chapter one of his audiobooks, is C.T. Phipps. C.T., let's talk. You know, I actually do really badly with audiobooks. I, do you really? I can't. I can't. Yeah, like, Even worse than yeah, with please, comic Please describe books. your... That's weird. Like I, I can't uh, do comic books for no, for one well, thing. I, I know that for the most part, but audiobooks are even worse because I have this thing where if I start reading something, I temporarily go deaf, literally. <laughs> like no, it, it's a real thing. They did a we study just walk on out it. The world. You know, yeah. do, don't you remember when, like being in the car and I'd be reading in the back seat and you'd be talking and you wouldn't hear. I literally would. Yeah. It's not that I was ignoring you. I literally couldn't hear you. Yeah, you become so, hyper-focused, you're right. If I focus on anything, but like 100% have my attention on listening while an audiobook is on, I miss a lot. The world. It's just a frustrating <laughs> experience to attempt to listen to an audiobook. That's funny. Uh, well, not funny, but weird. Well, no, I'm weird. For most people, it's much better than trying to read. But we know that. Yes. Not some not people. Me. Some people love audiobooks. Some people just cannot get into it. There, and it's just how uh, the cookie crumbles. When when I, I was I know, when I when I was working, I used to love on the commute just to pop an audiobook in. Uh, I've had to actually make time for it since I retired, which has been really <laughs> weird making time. You know, having to make time for something I really used to just be able to do and enjoy a, a, during a tedious drive for an hour. See, but then, like, you know, I'll sit there and someone will be an asshole at a red light and then it'll be three paragraphs later and I won't have any idea what happened. <laughs> like, what the yeah, did I've he just say? I don't anything. know. It's true. Uh. <laughs> Our guest tonight uh, on the cast is is a guy who, whose books I've I've liked a lot, and having found a, a bunch of his books, went uh, I, I got to get this guy on the show. We had him on about a year and a half ago to talk about his uh, the fate of the Jewish supervillain. Uh, 
in his uh, Rules of Supervillainy series, which was wonderful. He's back to talk about the beginning of uh, a new series, which just came out on uh, book one of which just came out on audiobook. Welcome back, uh, good friend of the show, C.T. Feb. C.T., welcome. Hey, awesome to be here. In fact, actually, uh, the benefits of being an indie author means that the second book of Lucifer's Star series is already out on Audible. Cool. Okay, we'll be talking about that as well when I've getting it, but I, I haven't gotten it yet. And getting isn't technically the word. Both there, but what the I hell? guess we'll talk about the first one now. I think we could. I think we should because it's it's uh, significantly different from the Rules of Supervillainy series in that this is not a quick read. This is a thick read. And it's filled with just ridiculous amounts of moral questioning and moral ambiguity and and weird stuff going on all the time. And it, it starts at the end of a war and then jumps a, a bunch of years. And we find ourselves with the main character whose name is Cassius Mask. And it's, it's for, before we even get into who the main character is, Talk about the world that you've built for this. Uh, I mean, this is classic space opera world building. And it's, 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 it's not, you know, a, a watercolor painting. This is, there's a lot of depth that's going on here. So let's talk about Lucifer's star and, and the whole world building thing for you. Oh, uh, well, this is a complicated story to begin with, but uh, I'm happy to uh, share every element of it. Uh, the book was uh, conceived by myself and Michael Suckett, not necessarily as a uh, novel initially, uh, but we were going to make a whole a role, tabletop role-playing game setting, which is actually the origins of the Expanse universe, if you uh, would like to know a little bit of trivia about another series. We were going to make this big, huge world uh, for gaming, and uh, we detailed uh, the uh, world, the cultures, the aliens, uh, the past, the future, the present, and then we just didn't get it uh, made into a setting because we were just so enamored of uh, what we created that we had to tell a story in it. And I sat down, and the whole thing I could imagine in it became like, well, how do I describe this in one sentence? And I went with, okay, what if it's like a cyberpunk R-rated Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> just this dark okay. and gritty take on the space opera genre with uh you know well are, aren't uh, having sentient robots slaves uh going with the full blade runner route there uh aren't these big galactic wars actually objectively horrifying with billions of people dying in them all the time <laughs> and yep, you know that's what all if, there for sure oh yeah and uh let's just take this big galactic war with uh, the Empire versus the plucky de uh, Republicans. And, well, let's just see, how do these those Thai pilots feel about when they lose the war and the Empire has fallen? And, oh, my gosh, I was the bad guy all along? How do they refit into society after that? Assuming they can. Well, there's, you know... Your, go main, ahead. your main character, Cassius Mass, um, starts off as part of the nobility uh, and ends up redeemed 
after promoting genocide, essentially. Uh, uh, Cass was definitely one of those guys who had been like, oh, the Death Star is a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and, you know, we're going to bring order to the galaxy. This is just going to help everyone. And, you know, aren't we just a bunch of heroes fighting terrorists? <laughs> and the worst part of it, without, without really giving anything away, I don't think anyway, is, is that because Cassius is part of the uh, nobility of Lu- the Lucifer Empire, mm-hmm. he's not even human. Uh, he's not even a human being. He's a, he's a cyborg, thrown uh, 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 in a test tube, kind of with improved sense, improved abilities, yeah. and genetic genetic clone of, of his own father and yeah. uh, wow <laughs> yeah uh, I base the Archduchy of Crius is, which I think is their formal name but you can just call them the uh, Lucifer Empire there they're like the most obviously <laughs> evil people you can make in a space opera universe but of course they don't see that <laughs> catches as blind to their faults until they're staring right up in his face <laughs> Just the, the, the mean, full bore, he, bore hammer he doesn't kind even of. see it. I mean, he yeah. he's not a dumb guy, but he's blind to his entire situation. He gets mm-hmm. thrust into the aftermath of it and finds himself on uh, uh, a, a half-drunken navigator on a mm-hmm. vessel of, of indeterminate origins and indeterminate need. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and then yeah. finds himself again redeemed, or at uh, least yeah, of sorts. There, redemption. part of the fun there is that uh, Cash just never quite uh, makes it the full uh, Luke Sky- Darth Vader uh, to Luke Skywalker journey. There, I mean, he stops at uh, Han in the uh, cantina shooting first. Yeah, <laughs> a little Malcolm Reynolds there. I mean, he. Cass was a, definitely a bad guy there, but having stripped away all of the privileges and propaganda and self-delusion about what exactly his people were all about, you know, he mostly just wants to uh, try and disappear into the cloud, but you can't escape the level of <laughs> screwed upness uh, he was involved in. So I can't, there, there's, there's a bunch of things. He, he falls into what is essentially unconditional love with three different women. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a complicated time in the future there. Spacers uh, <laughs> are very cosmopolitan people who don't really, uh, having had about a thousand years of gender inequality and, uh, and change and exposure to different cultures means that, uh, what they, uh, see won't take half. And, uh, Texas is from a much more conservative culture. So, uh, he, he's adjusting to that. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, so when, when we learn of Cass for the first time, he's in love with a woman called Ilsa, mm-hmm. who reveals fairly early on that she's not human either. She is a, a, a robot who was essentially uh, owned by Cass's cousin. Well, a distant cousin. The, the real thing about any kind of quote-unquote realistic royal family is you're probably related to everyone who has a title on your planet. 
but but the but Ilsa is is, and, uh, is made to look like the Snow Queen from Frozen. Where the hell did that come from? Oh, that's a that's that was a demented joke there that I thought would stop just about everyone listening to the audiobook when they hit there. It's just the idea is that uh, Ilsa is a runaway slave, like let's just say full on Blade Runner here. Uh, Bioroids are created to uh, be personal servants of uh, humans who can pay for them, and they're used for exactly the purposes you think they might be. Uh, just you know, a companionship, or uh, just because they don't want to deal with a bot, but. And uh, when I, in the dark and twisted levels of my mind there, I just think, you know, the people are going to license their uh, fantasies, aren't they? Yeah, evidently <laughs> they do. Princess <laughs> and, that, and that is the most messed up thing I could come up with. And while Disney doesn't exist there, I, I think we all got the joke. <laughs> but he, here's, and here's the messed up story of being poor, uh, poor Elsa. <laughs> And, you know, being an escaped slave robot with the fake memories of uh, of essentially a children's toy. Of a children's toy on one side and a doctor on the other. Yeah, because these people are, uh, are they are real people. They can grow beyond their programming. And uh, Ilsa, and, you know, it gets even more messed up. I'm not to spoil too much of her story there, but uh, the person she belonged to was a serial killer whose family was just like, well, we can't have you doing this kind of thing. So here's some identical to uh, real women uh, robots to just get your whatever off. There's there's a chilling sequence in there when when uh, Cass reels back in his memory and remembers all the women who used to hang around his quote cousin unquote. And wore long sleeves and high neck dresses for a reason. And that one line stuck with me for a couple of days. Mm. But what what stuck with me more is that as as Ilsa revealed herself, you you tended to go towards the the Blade Runner aspect of who she was, and I went a whole different route with it. I went all the way back to Asimov's Caves of Steel. And kind of found a lot of of commingling between her and Ardeniel Oliva in that that desire to understand the human in themselves and work that through. And I, I found that part of it to be really fascinating. It's got it's kind of a fascinating thing there that Cassius grew up as a society that makes artificial uh they were just a bunch of rich scumbags who bought their own planet and essentially made themselves a fake nobility by making, using their wealth to make the perfect children who uh, were even more privileged and could buy uh, perfect bodies and uh, looks and uh, build their fairy tale kingdom to serve their around their needs. And Cassius grows up in this ultimate world of privilege, and yet he's dealing with a person who grew up every bit is manufactured from the bottom and they kind of meet in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's <clears throat> more similarities between the two of them than differences. Um, mm-hmm. That, that to me, well, what, what you did with your main character 
and and I hope it continues through the second and third book. And I'm pretty sure knowing the way you write that it does, is you layered so much complexity on him because at the same time that he's dealing with Elsa, we start to find out about uh, um, Judith, which was his wife uh, in the old in the old bad days, and Judith was natural. She was not adorned in any way. She was not genetically modified or or or, or you know, plastic surgery at all. And he was intensely in love with her. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, Judith is uh, essentially there are the three faces of Eva with uh, dear Cass's uh, and Clarice. The, uh, w- yeah, the the women that uh, involved kind of we see a little reflection of uh, his growth as a person involved in that uh, with some interesting fun twists there. I mean, Cassius uh, and Judith were deeply in love and it was his one rebellion against uh, their society that he would have a thoroughly inappropriate uh, lover. And, you know, even as he was in intense denial that his wife never was, that their society was awful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, eventually, eventually, you know, uh, this happened in the first chapter there. Uh, the uh, the archduchy loses the war they started fully thinking they were going to win and they get clobbered and the get and everyone in the galaxy is like well thank god those bastards are gone yeah can we kill off every single one of them please and they go on a yeah, they, they go they, on a hunt yeah they just blast while they uh, drop rocks on the whole world of Christ until just about everyone is dead and Cassius is left wow this horrific atrocity and everyone is just nodding their heads like they had it coming and, you know, it's a tense uh, battle to, to rebuild it, and he's mourning his wife and uh, thinking about, well, what was she saying that I uh, missed? And in that humanity, uh, he uh, bonds with Ilsa, who is already in another relationship. <laughs> and, you know, kind of I had the fun of, uh, sc- uh, of uh, screwing around with cultural mores in the future because, you know, it's perfectly normal, but something he's trying to deal with. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that uh, Ilsa is already in a relationship with a uh, another woman uh, who kind of likes gas as well. But, you know, <laughs> they have their own <laughs> issues there. And uh, it's just Cass did a warning of the previous relationships and seeing if he can start a new one. And even if he deserves to be happy after all the things he did, because Gas did a lot of terrible things in the war, because, you know, that's what you do when you're a hero. Yeah, but the only one who doesn't think that he's a hero is him. He's kind of disgusted by, very early on in the book, he's disgusted with his former life and just basically wants to hide from it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he makes the connection very quickly uh, because in his society, you know, nothing, uh, nothing is so uh, honorable as victory. And here's the thing, they lost, so yeah. why are you even having any kind of romanticness to it there? But... Uh, this is he was one of the figures that was elevated by uh, basically propaganda on the enemy's side because it just uh, there was just something so romantic about the Acrius uh, with their knights and kings and uh, elaborate ceremonies. So you you kind of allow him to get uh, lost in the soft pillowy top of that society. And until he's forced to look at it 
afterwards, he has no real idea of how deep the rot goes underneath it. Oh, yes. It's, uh, the thing is, uh, Cat, Cassius is a volunteer for the military because in their society, uh, the majority of the military is not the nobility. They just have rear uh, officer positions because, well, they're a bunch of jackasses. While Cassius they, is like, oh, they don't do much of anything other than let everybody else die for them. Oh, yes. And uh, as we later in the book, we meet uh, a character from one of the many worlds that they they cry as pillaged and uh, ruled over with uh, imperialistic dominion. And he obviously uh, can't stand Cassius. <laughs> and Cassius is like, yeah, you, you're entirely justified in that. And if you, if you read it and you understand the world building and you really don't take this as a quick read, but take it as a deep read. um there are levels of moral ambiguity just that just run deeply through it. Um, and oh, yeah. there's, there's one point that I love uh, after he's kind of revealed on this trade ship that he's uh, sought refuge on. Uh, he's revealed for who he is. And mm-hmm. uh, Clarice, who is the security chief of the Shogun, which is the... Uh, which is the ship, says to him... Uh, Wampus, actually. Uh, Wampus. Shogun is her home planet. Oh, I'm sorry. Says, says yeah, well, to him, I had to break up three fights today. And he goes, nah, I'm really sorry you had to do that because of me. She said, no, actually, there were two guys who were like, you know, going after somebody else because they like you. <laughs> and you think to yourself, so there's, there's, within that society that exists now, uh, there's all kinds of stratifications of of how you deal with what happened in the past and what happens to the future. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, one thing I uh, enjoyed doing uh, was the fact that this could very easily have been a, a fairly straightforward redemption arc uh, as with Cass discovering, oh my goodness, my people were the Im- Imperial German army and <laughs> We just did a lot of uh, terrible, awful things, and it's gone, and now I have to come to terms with that. Well, no, it's uh, much more complicated than that, because uh, Cassius uh, did lose everyone he knew, and that anger will not go away. And it's not like you can just say, yeah, we had it coming, even if they kind of did. It's uh, Many billions of innocent people died in the destruction of this world, and it resulted in a crashed economy around everything, and the people who replaced it are like, well, we won. Um, yeah, you're free. Have fun. Uh, yeah. And, you know, plenty. Of, and here's the funny thing. Uh, in the Republic of Cryos, uh, which is the uh, government that replaces the Archduchy, a lot of the people that uh, take the jobs afterwards are the exact same people. And they're dealing with uh, a rebellion from uh, the people from the bad old days who are like, you, we are trying to avenge our lost brothers and sisters. We are the real uh, people here, and people get swept up in it. The time well, it yeah, that's kind of what happens a lot. And you've taken that and moved it, moved it into into a dystopian future that works at almost every level, except that. There are an awful lot of good people in this dystopian future. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a funny thing. Their good is somewhat relative, and there are a lot of these people on the Malampas are idealists, 
but there are also people who are idealists uh, that want to get paid first. So going with a Firefly kind of comparison there, and the Melampus isn't like the uh, Serenity. It's a uh, it's a big ship. It's like a, a small town in space. Right. There's like tons of people on this ship, and all kinds of you know all it's, kinds it's, of it's undercurrents running through it. I mean, including yeah. having three rather antique fighters sitting on the deck, uh, ready to go out at any time. Oh yeah. So I mean, it's a it's a thing there. Uh, it's a it's a ship full of uh, its own wretched hive of scum and villainy. But everyone has a story there, and everyone is the hero in their own tale. So, and Cassius is not terribly judgy. So whether you think the people on board uh, the Malampas are good, bad, or indifferent, uh, all of them certainly have a perspective. <laughs> and I like getting into that. So book. This this is now in having just almost at the end of book one. I've got a book two and a book three to work through as well. Uh, book two is out. It's on Audible and it's in a physical form and uh, on ebook. So any way you want to read it, it's there. We get more into uh, Cassius's family and the consequences and uh, the build up, and I think uh, it's even better than the first book. Okay, that's going to have to go a ways to make that happen for me, because I'm I'm totally enjoying the hell out of this one. Uh, I I based it on my love of the big epic trilogies from uh, my high school years when uh, I used to go down to the Walton Books, which is a a kind of ancient uh, tome place. Yeah, it's (laughs) like only spoken of a legend now. Yeah, I know. It's like the Dead Sea Scrolls are. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and, and there would always be, and fantasy books would always come in, except for the Wheel of Time, in three volumes, no matter what the story is. <laughs> and I tried to write in a, a as as a contrast to the Super Villain Saga, which is just in my brain candy. Uh, what if I wrote a really serious novel about uh, it set in space that had all the uh, fun of a epic fantasy novel and dealt with uh, the dark and uh, brutal undercurrents of a society like that. And, you know, there's plenty of uh, science fiction that has done that, but I felt uh, dark space opera was still largely uncharted territory. But this this is a genre that you've really never really stuck your toes into before. I mean, because space opera is a, is a huge responsibility to do right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've got to tell you, I mean, you know... Uh, there are a handful of authors who can really, uh, like Clifford Simak, who can who can do an incredibly good space opera, or Doc Doc Smith, and the, the those two are nothing like each other, nor anything like this, but they all have that same sense of of an ordered universe that everything must fit into. And uh, this is this is a phenomenal job. This is a fun time. Well, you haven't even gotten into the twisty parts there because <laughs> the be- the best part of the book is everyone thought this was going to be a typical uh, military science fiction thing. Then suddenly it switches to uh, the outlaws on a ship, and at the end you'll find that the book is also a spinal. Oh, cool! Well, you 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 do an awful lot of foreshadowing of of that this is actually a spy novel. <laughs> and it's fun oh, well, it's fun to see it from time to time oh yeah oh yeah it takes a while cash is a very 
is a, is supposedly three times smarter than a normal person there, but that just means he's really good at mathematics and remembering things. Right, but he's actually kind of dumb when it comes to other stuff. Well, stuff when, that he's when it comes to emotional uh, reading people, he is uh, missing a lot of subtle cues that everyone is lying to him. So what we'd like to do, CT, is... For, uh, now, here's, here's the question for you. I'd like to give our audience just a, a taste of a chapter of one of these books, but I hesitate to start at chapter one because chapter one is actually quite different from the remaining chapters in that it actually takes place during the war and the rest of it takes place uh, a couple of years after. Mm-hmm. So I'm at, well, I'm, at, I'm at a loss of, of where to drop into this story for the listener. Well, the first chapter is uh, because you need a sense of the scope of the uh, Archduchy War to yeah. really appreciate just what Cassius has gone through and you how it's left in scars. You kind of do. Anyhow, yeah. this is this is this is a fun story. It's not for the the. It's 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 not a cartoon. It's not funny. It's filled with a lot of moral questions and these questions are kept so that there's no good answer to literally anything and you're forced to look at all these moral issues from several different perspectives during the course of the book uh it's 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 a great story. It's a, it's a wonderful wor- world that you've built here. And I'm so much looking forward to books two and three. <laughs> Can't tell you. Oh, thank you very much there. And I love all of the characters I got to create around Kat. And well, from his perspective, uh, it's, it managed to take advantage of the thing that I do love about space opera is that it has just about everything. <laughs> if you look far enough in the galaxy. So you've got you've got some other books coming out now. Uh, the uh, is Brightblade out yet? Brightblade came out yesterday and ah. on audiobook as well as ebook. Nice. <laughs> it's yes, book it's on one sale of the, for two ninety nine. Nice book one of the Morgan Detective Agency. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. And clearly, since it came out yesterday, I haven't even seen it yet. But I love the graphic for the for the uh, for the cover. Yeah, Michael Suckis, who helped me uh, write uh, Lucifer Star, is also the co-writer of this. And my I was a teenage wear gear books, and uh, these uh, Bright Blade takes place in the United States of Monsters series. Is and I, I hate to say series is, but <laughs> there's like a four separate series that take place within in, that uh, the same world. <laughs> yeah. Brightblade uh, is about Ashley Morgan, who is a psychic, and she was trained by a cons- by the Men in Black and the conspiracy in the government to uh, fight supernaturals uh, from behind the scenes, right up until uh, just as she was about to graduate uh, from her intense training since childhood, like the Black Widow, to find uh, the supernaturals have come out in public, and she was out of a job. <laughs> So it picks about 10 years later where she's now in a bitter private detective making use of skills that uh, Liam Neeson would find uh, intimidating <laughs> in Taken, but 
can't really make her money because the government is not going to hire a secret agent for uh, for a secret paramilitary conspiracy. Well, that that so sounds she, like it's another one. Detective from Superman, yeah. That sounds like another one right up my alley. Uh, oh. <laughs> and uh, I am actually, you you know how much I'm in love with the universes you create. And uh, oh, yeah. this is. I summarize is, it as if the Black Widow was Jennifer Jones. <laughs> is there was, there was a comment in there about uh, she ordered to resign herself uh, uh, bringing in debt ridden supernatural criminals <laughs> oh yeah um, you know this is this is fun uh, and, and the universes you create are fun the characters you create are, are very complex and 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 very compelling ct i can't thank you enough for joining us tonight oh yeah i i look forward to hearing your thoughts when you finally finish lucifer star and if you want to do it for uh, lucifer's nebula i'm all for it absolutely let, I, let me finish this one first but definitely and now chapter one of lucifer's star by ct phipps lucifer's star Written by C.T. Phipps and Michael Sutkus. Read by Eric Burns. Chapter 1. The sight of the burning starships around me was like a galaxy of new stars lighting up the emptiness of space. Their fuel and energy cells burned without oxygen long after the crews had suffocated in the vacuum of space. Hundreds of dreadnoughts, battleships, carriers, and starfighters exchanged fire in the largest battle of the war. The revengeance was taking point in the assault on the enemy flagship, Earth's successor. We had managed to take out its support craft, and casualty ratings were still well within acceptable parameters. Acceptable, as long as I didn't think of Black Squadron 3 as Daniel, Skull Squadron 6 as Rebecca, or Dagger Squadron 7 as Lisa. They were men and women I'd trained with and called friends, now just particles and gas. Focus, I commanded myself, then spoke into my helmet's calm. I was sitting in the middle of my tight angle fighter cockpit, moving at speeds which boggled the mind. While space was largely empty, the tightness of the battle formations meant I needed to fly like I'd never flown before. The slightest misstep would mean not only my death, but my entire squadron's destruction. Dagger leader, I need you to bring up your teammates to thin out the ranks of those crosshairs. Yes, your excellency, dagger leader, a woman named Ariana Stonebridge, said, referring to me by my noble title rather than rank. I hated that. This was a last-ditch assault which Prince Germanicus had planned to blunt the offensive into our territory. The Commonwealth had reclaimed thousands of worlds in their quest to reunite humanity, but they were stretched thin and the Archduchy's resistance was fierce. If we'd had more allies, we could have repelled them, but the Archduchy of Cryus had few friends. In my more reflective moments, I had to wonder how badly we'd abused our neighbors, that many had cheered the arrival of the Commonwealth. The interior of the Engels' cockpit was a mixture of levers, pedals, and sensor equipment, which projected countless images into my cybernetically enhanced mind. 
I saw close-ups of the sword-shaped Cryus destroyers moving to cut off the escape of the massive Earth's successor, even as enemy reinforcements arrived from jump space. The saucer-shaped Commonwealth ships launched several thousand more starfighters to whittle down the shields of our ships, but it made no difference to our battle plan. We had to score a decisive victory here, even if it meant decimating our ranks. Archangel Squadron's part in the mission was critical. We had to weaken the Earth's successor enough for the Revengeance to blast away at its engines and allow the rest of the fleet to destroy it. Our foe was a massive ten-kilometer-long supercarrier, which doubled as a dreadnought capable of leveling planets. Adjusting my targeting computer, I gauged its shields and knew it would take everything we had to crack them before the Revengeance and its support craft to hammer it. If the shields were still up when our ships reached firing range, the attack would be like raindrops on steel. We could do it, though. We just needed to get past a few hundred enemy fighters first. Here they come, I muttered, not transmitting across the Engels' transceivers. We were tens of thousands of kilometers away from the Earth's successor, but at the speeds we were moving, we were only a few minutes from interception. Seeing two squadrons of V-shaped crosshair fighters descending on us, I decided now wasn't the time to worry. I picked one to shoot down with plasma cannons, followed by another, then another. The ones beside my targets detonated nearly as fast, destroyed by Hans and Brutus, with the rest of Dagger Squadron's pilots inflicting only slightly less damage. Crosshair fighters were inferior to Engels in several ways— not the least being inferior range. The Commonwealth's military doctrine believed in quantity over quality. These men had paid for it in their lives. I'd have to send their senators a bottle of wine in thanks. "'Got three that round, Colonel,' Lieutenant Colonel Hans Nakamura, my second, said. "'I'm only two behind your score.' The last of the two squadrons we'd faced were cut to pieces by my cannons before he'd finished his statement, bringing my kill score to 407. Commonwealth soldiers were rarely enhanced, either genetically or cybernetically, which meant they tended to die far easier in battle with Cryus ones. But for all my complaining about their inferior equipment, quantity had a quality all its own. The Commonwealth was thirty times the size of the Archduchy, and equally more populated. The flower of Cryus's youth was being extinguished under piles of the enemy's dead. No, I had to stop thinking like that. We would win here. The war would end. We would have peace. If I kept telling myself that, I'd believe it. Come back home alive, Cassius, Judith said, embracing me as I was about to depart on the shuttle up to the Revengeance. "'I'll come back with my shield or on it,' I replied. "'Cryus will triumph.' "'Fuck Cryus! I don't care who wins!' Judith spoke treason. "'I only care that you live.' "'Enough time for chatter after we won the war. First round's on me if you can shut up until then,' I said to Hans." noticing we'd managed to break through the defensive screen of the Earth's successor's starfighters. There were far fewer defenders here than I'd expected. We had nothing but a clear shot to the ship. 
We had a good lead on the starfighters behind us, which meant we could probably get two full attack runs away before they turned around to engage us. Then things would get hairy, and we'd probably be overwhelmed. So be it. I'm sorry, Judith. Gwydion formation, prepare payloads, you know the drill, I said, having planned the starfighter portion of the attack to the last detail. As a colonel count, I was technically outranked by the fleet's fighter generals, but they'd all chosen to follow my lead thanks to my reputation. My birth rank had also played a role, I'm sorry to say. Sound off. Affirmative, Hans said. Prepping payload, Archangel 2, over. Affirmative, Brutus said. Prepping payload, Archangel 3, over. Affirmative, Excellency, Flavia said. Payload prepared, Archangel 4, over. And so on and so on, until all twelve of us had confirmed their readiness. I couldn't help but feel a swelling of pride as I gave directions for my squadron to begin our attack run. Archangel Squadron was a mixture of elevated commoners, low-level nobility, and even a bastard son of Prince Germanicus. When I'd begun my service to the Archduchy of Cryas, they had considered me nothing more than a rogue genetic, born to the misguided vanity of a father with too much power and influence in the ruling families for his rank. A clone, almost as low as a gnat. Now they called me Cassius Mass, the Fire Count, the Colonel Count of Analathus. The Butcher of Colthus. My glory reflected the ranks they had all achieved. We passed the trials of countless battles and became a symbol of what Cryas could achieve working together. Awarded the highest honor our country had to give in the Lucifer's Star. Now we were going to die for our nation. It was the only way this ended. Stay safe, Judith said, muttering. Don't be a hero. Every soldier is a hero, I said, staring at her. The act of standing up for others makes you one. We are all prepared to die to save our loved ones. Okay, first of all, that's bullshit. Half of the army is conscripts. Second, being prepared to die for your country is different from trying to. I know you want to live up to the legacy you think you have to, but you're better than any of your ancestors. Am I? You're probably the only one worth a damn. Sometimes I wondered if she was right, and I was the only noble fighting for the people, and, even then, whether that was just a lie I told myself. I promise I won't throw my life away. Judith looked down. Don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Target the main batteries, sensor systems, and power flow relays, I said, watching the targeting spots light up across my screen. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of GraniteCon, Keen Comic Con, Plastic City Comic Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Be sure to visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. If you're looking for a really, really good gift book for the rapidly approaching St. Swithin's Day, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is now available on Audible. I'm not really sure where else you could possibly look for it. 
Our intro production is provided by Rob Watts. His amazing stuff can be found on robwattsonline.com. Check out the Watts sauce. Trust me on this one. Our outro music is provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves are at lawrencemademecry.com. A big hello to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the cast who helped make this possible tonight. From the Peabody Time Tunnel, Kriana and Zombrarian, thank you both very, very much for all you do. This is Dome saying Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. We'll talk soon, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. I keep getting these spam emails for weed control, but they're never what I expect them to be. Good night, everyone, unless it's daytime. I don't you hate people like me? I know I do.